0: Welcome to the Public Health is Essential podcast brought to you by the Washington State Public Health Association. I'm your host, Jeff Ketchell. This episode of the podcast is about decriminalizing youth purchase, use, and possession, or PUP, of commercial tobacco and vaping products. Coming out of the 20th century, public health was chalking up a victory on reducing tobacco use and making its use out of the ordinary in public spaces. Enter vaping, which took the country by storm 10 years ago and suddenly public nicotine consumption was renormalized and we saw an explosion of youth use. In response, public health passed vaping laws that aligned with their cigarette cousins and raised the purchase age to 21 in Washington State. However, kids were still attracted to vaping's fun flavors and space age look. More and more kids are trying these products and getting addicted to nicotine. What is the right answer to turn the corner? In this episode, we discuss one of the wrong answers, detaining, IDing, and finding kids suspected of purchase use or possession, just because Big Tobacco suckered them into trying it or getting addicted. This episode was recorded August 24th, 2022, and our guests were Elaine Ishiharo of APICAT, the Asian Pacific Islander Coalition Advocating Together for Health, and Penny Lipsu, who was with the American Heart Association at the time of the recording. Let's listen in. I'm deeply honored uh, to have our two guests here today, uh, Elaine Ishihara and Penny Lipso, to talk about the decriminalization of commercial of commercial tobacco or PUP standing for purchase use and possession affecting youth in Washington state. This is an issue that we've been working on and discussing for years now. And we really have not had a conversation like this before. So uh, I'm going to kick it off by first uh, having our guests introduce themselves. Uh, Elaine, would you like to introduce ourselves to our live studio audience? Okay.
1: So I'm Elaine Ishihara, and I staff the API Coalition Advocating Together for Health. And we have been um, addressing tobacco products in the Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander community since. 1997, and thank you for inviting me today, Jeff.
0: Wow, that, that's 1997. I, let me see. I was a a restaurant inspector uh, inspecting Pike Place Market in parts of downtown Seattle. So I got my career started in 1994. So. Uh, we, we may we may have intersected at, at, at one point or another, because I was also uh, just before that, the inspector up at the Central District and uh, Rainier Valley as well. So anyway, and Penny Lipso from the American Heart Association, Penny.
2: Thank you, Jeff. Uh, very happy to be here with you and Elaine for this conversation. Uh, my name's Penny Lipsu. she, her pronouns. I work for the American Heart Association, currently as their Washington State Government Relations Director. Uh, and I'll just quickly say that like preventing commercial tobacco dependence uh, is a very huge uh, priority for heart um, as it contributes to a lot of chronic diseases and premature deaths. So very happy to be here. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Penny. All right. So to really understand this issue, you really need to go back in time and this really started to dust up uh, with the passage of Tobacco 21. And so Tobacco 21 passed and it raised the the age where somebody had to be from 18 to 21 to purchase commercial tobacco or vaping products in Washington state. Um, Elaine, could, could you share us what happened with the passage of T21 and why this has become such an issue? Well, you
1: know, and actually the, um, The possession issue, it was prior to Tobacco 21. I think it came to light when they started talking about increasing the age of sales and and products for tobacco products to 21. And we discovered that there was a law in there that prohibited, I mean, that if you were under 21, you could be approached. I mean, the focus was on the person rather than the point of sales. Okay. And so that was a, just a big concern. And we started really doing an education campaign um, around 2016.
0: Mm-hmm. So but before Tobacco 21 passed, you know, anyone under the age of 18 <clears throat> could be, could be carted, could be you know approached by a law enforcement officer. Um, but then with T21 passing uh, the nine, eight, 18, 19 and 20 year olds were exempted from that, but the law stuck with the 17 and youngers still being able to be detained and, and things like that by by law enforcement. Um, is, is right. that 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 that's that's still the case, correct?
1: well and and so the issue was you know if you're under I mean you're not required to carry an ID
0: right right and so that could be a real at, problem that could be a real problem right? for for you know sixteen year old Jeff Ketchel on on the corner of 7 eleven right. in West well, Seattle growing up uh, I you know still, yeah well
1: and this is personal I mean I started smoking menthol cigarettes when I was sixteen and so the whole tobacco issue around the how the industry really targets young people, like they mm-hmm. don't care about someone my age starving. Mm-hmm. They're looking at the lifelong commitment of these products that we know are the leading cause to chronic disease and, and a lot of chronic disease and death, right? right. And so leading it was cause. kind of comprehensive, right? Well, then you start taking a look at law enforcement when actually it was the at the point of sales it's the responsibility of the person selling the products, not to sell to underage young people or youth. And so um, it was like, here we have the industry, you know, getting a whole new generation of users, not just for combustible, but vaping products. Mm -hmm. They're addicted. We don't have the resources to help them quit. We're going to raise, increase the age Mm -hmm. But continue to keep these um, these kind of laws in place that have been proven not to be a strategy to prevent young people from accessing. Right. And that's that was the overall issue around increasing the age to 21, if that makes sense.
0: Okay, And yeah. So fast forward to now, we've since passage of tobacco, 21, uh there's been bills and in the last two years it was senate bill 5129 that would eliminate uh this so so what why is this a problem isn't this isn't this like a a tool another tool in the toolbox to get kids to not smoke knowing that they can get in trouble with with police penny what do you think
2: yeah great question and that's uh saying that um We know that this is, you know, part of the legacy of the war on drugs essentially, um, that we know is just outdated and misguided and not really effective at all. And, you know, we cannot criminalize people to change their behavior, right? Like we need Uh cultural change, resources, support. Um, you know, there is a lot of debate, you know, amongst advocates and law enforcement. And, you know, I think we all have a shared goal of not you know, having youth and young adults um, initiate or become dependent on nicotine or any kind of commercial tobacco product. Uh, We just kind of, you know, have different ideas of what that looks like. And I think, um, or, you know, what we see in these conversations often is just like, if we're not punishing people, then what are we doing? You know, like, are we uh, rewarding folks? Or, you know, I think it's really hard for people to get out of like a binary thinking around this. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, to Elaine's point, right, we need services and different access points that are not law enforcement, right? Like, uh-huh. like community based programs that are culturally responsive to different groups of youth and young adults.
1: Yeah. And so I just want to add can I add something? Oh, please. <laughs> I, well, I mean, it's like, We agreed that it was a good thing to increase the age of tobacco sales to 21. You know, it was a powerful move to reduce youth access to Mm -hmm. both um, tobacco and vapor products. But then also, it's like remove all the civil penalties for possession of tobacco for anyone under the legal age, especially if you're not required to carry ID. Uh-huh. And like, there's little evidence to support the effectiveness of laws that punish youth for possession, right? The PUP laws. And Change Lab Solutions, I believe, they wrote a paper on this. Um, and that said that such, you know, having these laws have been a tactic of the industry to shift the blame from its own marketing practices to the, you know, to people that are using. And it's like, okay, you can change the laws, but again, we need to invest in helping people that are using. And remember that the common denominator is an addiction to nicotine. Uh-huh. And so, and legalized, right? So, and infor- oh, and I just want to add that you know the the communities that targeted with the products are generally communities of color, LGBTQ, low income, and unfortunately are also often um, the communities that experience unequal treatment from law enforcement. And yeah, so so uh,
0: so, so what? So what I'm hearing. Is a police officer's ability to go up and ID a kid who they think is, or is smoking or they think was smoking, is not going to really change that kid's behavior?
1: I think you will. yeah. <laughs> think back to when you were 16. I mean, it's been many, many <laughs> decades, but really, yeah. you know. And, and and then the other piece in Washington State, then it's the peace officers and the liquor companies. Control board officers, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they are all—all all of these officers are armed. Um, and we're just, you know, we're living during a period of time when we talk about equity. Yet we continue to allow these type of things. That is easily. I mean, there's other ways of being able to address underage possession
0: right right and so um, so what do you think the the commercial tobacco and vaping industry thinks about all this what is their role in in this be, being such a problem
2: good question I mean I, I think it's it's been a successful they've done well I mean they also pour tons of money towards aggressive marketing campaigns towards youth and young adult particularly like the youth, You know, that Elaine just mentioned, youth of color, LGBTQIA youth, you know, youth experiencing homelessness, low income youth, foster youth. Right. Um, And so it is just an easier way to um, shift the blame, shift the focus, shift the responsibility Mm -hmm. off of them. Um, when really we should be looking at a more systemic, holistic approach that's Mm -hmm. more comprehensive and not individualized. And, you know, another thing, too, like around the equity piece um, is that in Washington, you know, we don't have a state-centralized criminal legal system. So then you have the, the lead prosecutor in each county really determining the outcomes for youth. And so you have some counties that are more progressive, And some counties that are a little bit more punishment focused. And so you also have inequitable outcomes based Uh on your geography, you know, and and that just that's not okay, Right.
0: Right. So so if, if this is not the best way to reduce youth initiation and use, then what is?
1: Well, you know, the other thing is this. I think the other factor is the fact that Washington up until this this year and thanks a lot to Penny and you know the advocates for having additional funds dedicated to the t- commercial tobacco and vaping program right at the state level there were no resources because prior to all of this it was really the focus was on doing compliance checks and both the local health departments or health jurisdictions. You may even be able to speak to this, Jeff. Um, and also the Liquor Cannabis Board conducted compliance checks at the point and it was really the point of sales, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But with reduced resources, there was less opportunity for that. And then if you take a look at it, when there is less resources You know, we used to have this great comprehensive commercial tobacco and prevention program here in Washington, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a topic for another day. But Absolutely. And without having those resources, we tend to do high-level policy change. Right. And we can't even do anything at the local level, which is another topic, which is the whole preemption. And Mm -hmm. so here we are stuck in a place where we are really trying to educate people because it's really about – you know, framing it as healthy communities. And we need to invest in our youth, right? Um, I, it's like just to focus on that. And if they're addicted to nicotine and we aren't being responsible enough to to invest in helping them quit, then they're going to try to get their products um, because they're addicted. So it's like re, reshifting but taking this, these policies, making some policy change to be able to support more community-based intervention and prevention—that's probably
0: all I need. To end- Penny, you oh, want to jump in here? I see. Jump sure, away.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah. I just wanted to add and echo what Elena is saying too around the the cultural change and support needed you know, and, and hopefully you, we're on track now that we have a little bit more resources directed towards um, increasing capacity and community education and public awareness around all of this. I think a lot of people still don't even know that the legal age to purchase tobacco is 21. You know, mm-hmm. like we still haven't really done a lot of education for that, right? Um, but But, you know, we can also agree like, smoking and vaping and certain types of behavior can be symptomatic of a lot of other things. And, and creating a sense of community for all is really what we want for healthy communities so that folks don't need to cope with stress through a substance, right? Um, so I think that is our a real shared goal and not having law enforcement as the entry point and access to services and having way other upstream points of contact and support before
0: that. Good point. And so, Elaine, I want to go back to something you you said earlier about uh, compliance around uh, vaping and commercial tobacco retailers. So I I looked it up because I knew this was going to come up. And the the most recent data I have is from October of last year. But in October of last year, when they were doing uh, uh, compliance checks in Washington State, one in four retailers were selling to youth undercover. So one in four is that a big piece of the problem here?
1: Well, and it goes back to having resources, right? Because before there was a lot of retail education, mm-hmm. you know, and and a lot more activity in doing these compliance checks because the local health department. I know we live in King County, so they were very active in having young people, you know, be a part of their compliance team. And they were actively doing this year round, and I believe it had an impact on the sales.
0: Right, so. right. I just want to say to our, our audience here, if anybody has any questions, they would like to feel free to drop them into the chat, and I'd be happy to to ask our ask the group here in uh, our remaining few few minutes of uh, today's episode. What's on the horizon? what do we need to do as a public health system what do we need to really address both equity and racism in this in commercial tobacco but also to really prevent addiction and prevent initiation
1: well you know for me i having been working in doing commercial tobacco for like 20 years, it's really about having adequate resources mm-hmm. and investing in both prevention, community education, um, resources for schools, you know, all of this, because it, it requires a comprehensive approach to to really do this right. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the industry, I can't, I don't even know how much, but it's an enormous amount of resources that they dedicate on a daily basis they to do. sell their products. And I don't and so you know we're just beginning to be able have the ability to rebuild the base. So it's going to be important to continue to support support more than just policy change. And we're just continuing to try to educate people about the importance of like this is a minor policy, but it it potentially you know if a young person is confronted and it go and it escalates, that's what we're concerned about. And unfortunately, in the environment that we're currently living in, it is not. I mean, there have been cases where people have have been involved in confrontation over tobacco products and with not good results. And we don't want that to happen
0: here. So a question from the audience, I'll throw this at Penny. So the average uh, pack of cigarettes generates $3.02 in tax. Does any of that money go towards prevention campaigning?
2: That's a great question. And I chuckle because we've had lots of Lots of debates around this and and conversations around the distribution of funds here. Um, Very, very little, good question. Um, The state pulls in with our uh, commercial tobacco tax, with our e-cigarette vapor tax, um, and also with the master settlement agreement, which was a case um, a long time ago with the tobacco industry and and all the states um, continually annually receive upwards of 20 million uh, to the state. Most all of that money goes to the state's general fund. Um, There's just a small percentage from the e-cigarette vapor tax, and it's a very wonky formula that needs to be cleaned up, uh, that goes to the commercial tobacco program. Um, So it's a great question, and it's a huge need. And it's sadly not uncommon across the United States for very little of the tobacco revenue to go back into tobacco prevention and cessation resources. Um, So I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but uh, you know, before we got 5 million um, in appropriations last year to go towards the commercial tobacco program, we were maybe getting annually like $2 million um, into the statewide programming. Um, So, so we're really um, not, Doing a service to youth and young adults who are really being preyed upon by the tobacco industry.
0: Yeah, I agree. You know, I already I uh, the answer, Petty, and it irritates me every time I hear it.
2: Well, we went from a $25
1: million investment with the master settlement in 2002 to in 2010 or 2011, basically redirected the master settlement um, funds to biotech. And then the tax with the recession, right? We got three. Mm-hmm. I mean, it went into the general fund, and so we went from 25 million to up until this year, two and a half million dollar investment into the program, and with a large portion of that coming from CDC. This is what happens.
0: So, another question here, and we're just in the last couple of minutes. Uh, are there examples from other fields or topics that we might learn from? Other examples of for profit organizations pushing illegal or unhealthy behaviors and shifting the enforcement away from the individual and higher up the food chain toward the for profit organization? And I will, I have a lot of ideas here. And the first one that jumped in my mind was opioids and the Sacklers. And how they push uh, Oxy created a lot of addicted individuals around the country who lost access to those pills and turned to heroin and uh, really bore the brunt and their families bore the brunt of that uh, corporation's uh, decision-making and uh, economic priorities. From everything I've read, I think I'm going to be ultimately disappointed in how the, the, the punishment is meted out uh, to those corporate uh, individuals. But that, that's one. And I, and I always try to think about fast food as well. You know, other than like menu labeling, where uh, a lot of places have required, you know, fat and, and calories and, and ingredient content be be easily accessible, like you would see on the side of a soup can. Uh, I don't. I don't think there's there's much there. You know, I think about the McDonald's success with the Happy Meal and really uh, getting kids addicted to McDonald's food with the uh, lure of a of a toy related to a movie that was in the theaters. Anyway, those are the things that come, anything come to your minds, Penny or Elaine?
1: You know, I feel like, and this goes back to the comprehensive model that Washington State developed in 2000 to approach tobacco, which was comprehensive community education, uh, public education campaigns, cessation, you know, data collection, all of that, it was, can be applied to the sugary sweetened beverage issue. The sugar issue Ah, is very similar to tobacco. And here we tried to do this tax, right? But we didn't educate anybody. We didn't tell people, well, you know, it's an alarming rate of early onset diabetes, particularly in certain communities, Mm -hmm. right? And, but we didn't do that. We just went ahead and started saying, we're going to, you know, people did not have some possession issues over their big goals. They did not want to see that getting, <laughs> well, but if you take a look at it, the approach that was used for tobacco, because in 10 years, prevalence rate for tobacco use went from 21% to 14 And to me, that's evidence based. And so here you can apply the same approach to other health related issues. And if you have adequate resources, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. allow people to make informed decisions rather than just doing top down policy change. Mm -hmm. And then they see, oh my God, today I could buy a pack of cigarettes and tomorrow I cannot. Right? There There you go. My big gulp is going to go from 99 cents to $2.50. I mean, okay. Yeah,
0: good. yeah. No. No, I, we were, we were in Seattle this past weekend uh, for a concert and went of course went to Dick's Drive-In for a, a special. Uh we did we did not buy any soda, but it definitely had a posting there saying this is how much of your Coca-Cola goes towards this uh, Seattle sugar tax. So there you go. Um well, that is our time today. And thank you, Penny. Thank you, Elaine, for being part of the Public Health is Essential podcast uh, with the live studio audience talking about this important issue and topic. Hey, everybody, have a great day. Support public health. Cheers. As a follow-up, the 2022 retail compliance rates as reported by the Washington State Liquor Cannabis Board were 20% for commercial tobacco and 25% for vaping products. Meaning, one in five commercial tobacco retailers and one in four vaping retailers sold their products to a minor during a compliance check. Unacceptable. The focus of law enforcement should be on the retailers selling to youth, not the kids themselves. Detaining and finding kids is not a public health intervention. Prevention, not punishment. Thank you for listening to the Public Health is Essential podcast theme music is night drive licensed under a creative commons attribution 4.0 international license by shane ivers of silvermansound.com the best way to support the public health is essential podcast is to become a member of the washington state public health association find more information at www.wspha.org you can also follow public health is essential on twitter and facebook and thank you for listening